Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. This episode of Jaws of Justice is hosted by Elise Max and covers the current clemency campaign for Kevin Johnson. Kevin is scheduled to be executed in Missouri on November 29th. Elise will speak with Michelle Smith of Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty and Dr. Pam Stanfield, Kevin's former teacher and friend, about Kevin Johnson, and so we'll learn his story. Please stay tuned to learn more about Kevin or to get involved with death penalty abolition in Missouri. We'll play the calendar at the midpoint of our hour. In the second half of our hour, You'll hear a podcast from Death Penalty Information Center, which features former Oklahoma Governor Brad Henry speaking with former U.S. Magistrate Judge Andy Lester about the Oklahoma Death Penalty Review Commission. The death penalty violates the most fundamental human right, the right to life. Curiously, even if evidence supports a shadow of a doubt that the offender has taken a life, Is justice served by taking the offender's life, or isn't this a perpetuation of offense? On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, especially community radio listeners in Kansas City. Very glad to be with you this morning. My name is Elise Max, and it's good to be back in the studio for this really important show today. This episode will spend a half hour focusing on the pending execution of Kevin K.J. Johnson, speaking with those who are fighting to save his life. We'll be joined by, Mich- uh, by Michelle Smith of Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty and one of Kevin's elementary school principals and dear friends, Dr. Pam Stanfield. The point of this show is to get to know about KJ as a person. And one thing that is unique to Kevin's clemency campaign is we have an amazing clemency video that is going to allow us to hear directly from Kevin and Kevin's loved ones in their own words. This video was done by Emily Kunzler of Off Center Media and was presented to Governor Parson last week. You can view the entire video at www.madpmo.org. So I'm going to go ahead and kick it off this morning. Good morning. Uh, Michelle, thank you for being with us. I appreciate your time this morning. I know you are fighting tooth and nail as we are close to a week away from this execution. So can you kind of kick us off by letting our listeners know a bit about yourself and the work you're doing for Kevin Johnson? Of course I can, and uh, thank you so much for allowing us to space this morning. Um, my name is Michelle Smith. I'm co-director over at MADP, and our goal with our organization is to stop our state of Missouri from um, these capital punishments, a.k.a. the death penalty, and all of our work centers around that, from supporting those on death row to um, interacting and lobbying with our legislators as well. Our, um, you know, our focus is to stop atrocities like what is scheduled to happen to Kevin Johnson. Um, and correct, in eight days on November 29th, Kevin is scheduled to be executed at the Bonterre Prison. 
And this is something that his family and all of those that love and are advocating for him are dreading. And we are here every day amplifying his name, his humanity, and the fact that he deserves mercy and compassion to things that he was never afforded in his life. Wow, thank you. And I, I know the work is cut out for that in Missouri. It's uh, one of a very few handful of actively executing states. Um, let's turn to Dr. Stanfield. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to know Kevin? Well, my name is Pam Stanfield, and I was Kevin's elementary school principal. So I knew Kevin as a sweet little cute uh, five-year-old in kindergarten and watched him grow uh, kindergarten through fifth grade. And then, of course, you know, the, the way it works in the public school system is you've got a building full of kids in elementary school. And once they move on, they move on. You don't really keep up with them in middle school and high school. But Kevin and I reconnected when I read that he'd been arrested and um, went to go visit him in the St. Louis County Jail. And at the time, I thought, I'm not really sure what we're going to talk about. Those 40 minutes flew by. He makes talking to him just so comfortable, so easy. And uh, we reconnected, talked about his family. And for the last, I guess, 17 years, um, we've been emailing, writing. I've been to visit him. Um, his daughter, who is now 19, um, I've been in her life ever since she was, uh, I guess, kindergarten age. And from fifth grade on, I would visit her weekly. Um, she's graduated. She graduated early. We're really proud of her. And uh, I tell you what, Mr. Kevin Johnson is one of the best dads I have ever seen. That's great. And we'll get uh, a little bit into um, his being a dad and how that's possible when you're behind bars. But I want to take a minute and turn to our first clip so we can let Kevin introduce himself. Um, this is the first clip that was shown at the governor's meeting last week. So I'm going to um, shoot it over to the clip. My name is Kevin Johnson. I've been sentenced to death in Missouri for the 2005 murder of William McEntee. If I could speak to the McEntee family, his wife, his kids, I would tell them that I'm sorry. That I never meant to, I guess, tear their family apart. You know, I never wish to bring pain to them. Um, like I said, if I could erase that day, I would. So, I just want to say I'm sorry. I kind of be honest, like, you know, I did a terrible thing, so, you know, I don't want to pay for it this way, but, you know, if I have to, then I got to be at peace with that. I want the world and the government to know that that moment doesn't define me. I've grown, I'm a better person. I'm caring. I think I could be more of a help for people alive than dead. All right, 
Nice. That's a very, very powerful statement from KJ. Obviously, you know, up front is the great amount of remorse that he feels, um, which he wants to take full responsibility for. And he tells people that that day does not define him. Um, so I want to turn to Dr. Sanfield. And, and I know you're very close with Kevin, and you started to talk a little bit about his relationship with Corey. So can you talk more what people should know about Kevin? What does define Kevin? other than what we're going to see in the upcoming week that the media is going to use to frame the incident. So talk to us a little bit about what you think people should know that defines Kevin. I think people should know that he is so much more than the crime. He is um, an incredible writer. Um, I was teaching college grad students, and he was writing. I had encouraged him to keep a journal for his daughter when she was very, very young, because I thought, you know, when she hits her teenage years, she's going to say, well, who are you to tell me? And I said, it it would be so important for her to know that you've been in her life loving on her from day one. So he began his writing doing that. And then he moved into writing about his, um, his own life. He has a powerful story to tell. So that incredible gift of writing um, has served two purposes. One, um, to really let everyone know who he is, but I think also to help him pass that time um, so that it's useful time. I also remember in one of our visits encouraging him, Kevin, you can be a role model. <laughs> and his response was, Dr. Samuel, I'm in prison. And I go, I don't care where you are. You can be a role model. And I have since read letters that his fellow inmates have written um, just lauding him and uh really talking about how very um, much he has influenced their lives and even life there um, at Potosi. Um, Kevin would call uh, his daughter, Corey, two or three times a week. Um, His family certainly had their eyes on her and what was going on in her life. And I was kind of the liaison to the school district. So Kevin knew pretty much everything Miss Corey was doing, much to her dismay at times when she said, how does he know I didn't do my social studies assignment? Um, One of the things that Corey has shared is she feels like her dad has been in her life even more than the dads of some of her friends who are in in their homes. So uh, he's taken that role very, very seriously. And he desperately wants a better life for Corey and her new son that he just had a chance to uh, hold, not what a few weeks ago. Um, So he's an incredible young man. Um, I am in awe of his strength and the impact he has on others. That's amazing. Um, Michelle, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Um, uh, There definitely is. So um, even when we talk about, you know, how great of a dad Kevin is and, you know, how he has purposefully done done everything he can to be supportive of Corey, you know, even from uh, the place of incarceration, it's also important to understand that to get to that place in his own life in mind, he had some healing to do. You know, Kevin had a very, very rough, difficult, um, suffering, struggling childhood. And so that created many, many, many difficulties, you know, mental health, um, depression, and other issues that he uh, was struggling with. So after he was incarcerated and dealing, you know, with his case and wanting to be a good dad to Corey, he knew that he had to heal 
himself. He knew he had to do whatever he uh, uh, could in order to figure out how to, you know, deal with his own mental health issues and his own struggles that he was having internally in order to be a good father. And so many people today out here in public miss that, that you cannot be, you know, healthy and whole for your children um, if you are damaged and if you are doing, you know, if you have some some difficulties that you're not dealing with on your own and in your own life. So Kevin understood that, which is, you know, an amazing amazing thing in itself and he took those steps um you know he started reading like dr stanfield said he was actually reading you know other like psychology books and and just studying and talking to other men who were in prison and getting to a place where he was healing himself i just want to say that prison does not heal people it does not rehabilitate that's not what it's there for even if they say it is it's not but the people inside of these institutions once they make a decision to to help and heal themselves whatever means they can you know that's how they go about doing that and kevin definitely did that and once he started to heal himself and make himself better he was able to be more positive more present you know and more supportive of Corey in her life as a young girl so i just really want people to understand and commend him for that because that was definitely um something that a lot of people necessarily don't do again out here there are so many parents who are you know re-traumatizing their children because they haven't healed and dealt with their own issues and traumas and so it's just really amazing that he took those steps and We've had many conversations about how he did that. And I've just been amazed that he had the state of mind to understand in order to be there for my daughter, I need to I need to make sure I'm OK. And so I just want to people to understand that aspect as well. That's yeah, that's amazing. And I do want to turn now to talk a little bit of, you know, more about what you're you're talking about, about KJ's childhood, the abuse and neglect that he faced that's pretty much true in most all death penalty cases. There's an absolute failure of the systems that are put in place to protect children. Um, there's a complexity of macro level and micro level system inequities that are caused trauma and they have irreparable consequences. And I think that's pretty obvious in Kevin's case. And so Michelle, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the macro level. KJ grew up in a part of Kirkwood in St. Louis called Meacham Park. And I think it's important to understand a little bit about what was going on in Meacham Park at the time before we talk about what was going on in KJ's life specifically. So can you give us just a a brief summary of what inequities were happening in Meacham Park around that time? Um, I sure can. So there is a concept, a, a term called benign neglect. And this is a term that the government um, has been using since the 1960s and 70s after civil rights era. Basically, it was, you know, we gave you all you know, civil rights and voting rights. So we're just going to leave you alone and let you figure things out. And this happened in poor black communities. Um, and they they would basically socially um, educationally neglect these communities um, and th- do things like, you know, take the land for certain purposes. So in Meacham Park, they took a, a huge part of the land for a shopping mall, a shopping plaza. It's like a Walmart and Target and other stores, but they took that land from the community and made it into the shopping area, which devastated the community because, you know, a lot of people had to leave. So it broke up the community, but th- there was not a lot of, you know, social and supportive health 
for the people in Meacham Park. There was not a lot of opportunities for them. And the one thing that the, the society and the system and specifically Kirkwood did not do after they annexed Meacham Park um, for this particular shopping district. One thing that they I'm sorry, one thing that they did do uh, besides neglect them socially was target them with the police. So when we see a poor community of, you know, majority black people that have been neglected in so many ways societally, but when it comes to, you know, prison, I'm, I'm sorry, not prison, but police. And when it comes, you know, to that, um, you know, that law enforcement aspect, they are targeted more. So less, you know, less harassed and arrest everyone in the community who are struggling and suffering with things like drug addictions, you know, and poverty. Not, let's not help those things, but let's just target them for arrest and prosecution. So that's really, you know, the story of Meacham Park in a, around a time that Kevin was born in the um, uh, 80s and, and 90s and early 2000s the, where the community was just so devastated from so many things of neglect you know, taking their land and being harassed by the, the system and the police, they did not trust the system anymore. Nobody in Meacham Park trusted the police. Nobody in Meacham Park thought that, you know, the larger community of Kirkwood was there to actually help them. They had very, very, uh, a lot of criticisms and I would call it side-eyeing. They side-eyed Kirkwood because the only thing that they consistently did to this community was target them with law enforcement. Right. So Meacham Park was just just a, a community where they were they they needed a lot of help there was so much going on kevin's own mom um uh, um developed a substance abuse disorder and his father went uh, was incarcerated so there was so many things going on i've heard at one point that kevin's grandmother had uh, up to 10 children that she was you know raising and helping because the parents were struggling so much so the community needed so much help but the only thing you know that they received was police was you know being targeted being harassed being looked at as if they were doing something wrong when all, honestly all the community needed was you know help and support and to make sure that you know the children were educated and everyone was housed and fed they needed things that society is supposed to give you know what i'm saying our uh, our struggling people but they they did not do that. So that they uh, uh, Mission Park was definitely neglected severely other than that law enforcement presence. Interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, that's the prime example the, that law enforcement is just ill-equipped to be providing social services and we continue to fund them to do so. And so if this isn't a prime example of how we need to reimagine public safety, I really, I don't know what is. Um, so that's Thank you for talking about that on the macro level. That was what was going on. I do want to turn to the next clip. It's going to start out with Kevin's brother, Marcus, talking about his experiences growing up. And then it'll turn to KJ's coach um, and some of his teachers to talk about what the adults were um, viewing as uh, he was being abused um, growing up in um, Meacham Park. Well, growing up, you know, we had a hard childhood. My mother, you know, falling victim to crack cocaine and she just lost focus of us you know being left alone in the house nothing to eat and maybe days at a time you know um and we get so hungry you know we got a lot of roaches and stuff like on occasions like when it was too bad we tried to get the roaches eaten you know life was not good to him and he had a shitty home life the only time i was confident that he was probably eating correctly was at school i'd probably have known kevin 
most of his life, at least since he was five when he used to come around to the stadium on game days and bug me for food. I feel like maybe we could have done a better job of helping Kevin. We could have done a better job of helping his immediate family. So in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, we let them down. He was fighting, you know, incredible obstacles from abuse and neglect from an infant on through his life. I knew that Kevin was experiencing abuse because Edith would tell me she abused him. She would spank him so much that he was not responding to it. And there were days when he would come to school and he would smell like urine. And that was a form of punishment. And I should have prefaced that with a content warning. And I know it's difficult to listen to and and you know, to, to see these adult children kind of grappling with um, the facts of what was going on when they were growing up is is pretty amazing. Um, one thing that really stands out uh, throughout the Clemency video is that there seems to be a theme of adults in KJ's life looking back and asking themselves, what did they do wrong? And I know recently there have been some forms um, in Kirkwood asking the questions, what about the children? How can we make sure that this doesn't happen again? So Dr. Stanfield, I'm gonna ask you first, um, what is your response um, when adults ask, um, you know, how how did this happen? Or how would you respond to someone like uh, Rachel Chalmers, who is looking back now, sees the ways the system failed him, but the amount of abuse and neglect he was going through was apparent at that time. So how do you respond to that? You know, um, that that has occupied a lot of our minds for a long time. It's like, why didn't we really get it? Why didn't we understand that? And I was on a panel just last week, and uh, one of the other young men on the panel grew up in the area, was another one of my former students. And he said, you know, what goes on at home stays at home. You're told not to talk about your business when you go to school. And you you um, are mandated reporters. If you see abuse, you report it. Um, and yet there are times when you would call DFS, our Division of Family Services, and if the child's not in immediate danger, they don't listen to you. So there's that frustration. And I think all of us looking back wonder, you know, what could we have done differently? Um, I actually talked to Kevin about that um, after we had the panel discussion last Thursday night. And I said, Kevin, I know there were a lot of people who reached out to help you. His first grade teacher, Rachel Janesse, in particular, she loved that kid, would, you know, give her time in the summers to take him to camps and um, all the way through his middle school principal, his high school coach. And he said, you know, not only um, do you have to recognize that people are there to help you, you have to be willing to accept that help. And so as we talked about, okay, what do we do now with kids? And one of the things he said is, you really have to listen, you really have to know what's going on. And they're not going to be easily uh, willing to tell you all that. So that comes back, I think, to relationships. And I shared um, at the panel, uh, a quote that I'd heard from Brian Stevenson, who is with Equal Justice Initiative, and he was saying proximity. You know, if you don't live in that world, you don't understand that world. So get closer to that world, begin to interact with those who are marginalized so that you you do begin to see things differently. You begin to see things through their eyes and perhaps then we can make a difference. So um, Kevin has 
over the years really worked with me. We've talked very openly about the black-white cultural differences. He's helped me do presentations for teachers, counselors, principals, um, even mentoring. We, we've talked about that. I've been his mentor for a number of years. And one of the questions I asked him for a mentoring presentation was, why did you accept a white lady? And he goes, because there wasn't a black man who'd been you know, been through what he'd been through, um, who was doing that. In fact, he just recently met um, a pastor and he talked about that was one of the first professional black men that he's met in his life as a role model. That's sad. So I, I think all of us, black and white, need to really take a look at what we're doing to our children. We have got to step up and make a difference. Yeah, thank you for that. Michelle, what are your thoughts about the culpability of the adults that failed Kevin early in life? Um, so interestingly enough, uh, Elise, I have a personal story that connects to Kevin's. And even at the time, I didn't understand why. Um, so I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, back at that time, um, I believe, especially in Kirkwood, a lot of the teachers really didn't have a, a, a proper frame of reference of what you know, um, struggling black children are dealing with. Um, I know that Meacham Park and also there was a transfer program that sent black inner city youth to Kirkwood. And I believe that it was just not something a lot of people truly understood and, you know, just had an understanding about like what, you know, poor communities, what, you know, um, children who are suffering, struggling and hungry, what they deal with. So I do believe that it was just something that, you know, a lot of times people just didn't have the proper understanding of how serious these things were. And so, um, of course, you know, there are many, many adults um, in Kevin's life, including his teachers who feel some guilt and, you know, and definitely are grappling with that right now. Um, and, I, and I definitely understand that. Um, but I do think that that experience also allowed the school district overall to reimagine what they would do in these situations, you know, how they would help. Obviously, there was a failure on, Ke you know, for, uh, with Kevin. The system, not only the school, but the social service system, every system that society has that is meant to, you know, be there to protect and help children who are vulnerable, it failed Kevin Johnson. So I know now the writer system has not taken a whole lot of steps to fix these things because they still go on today. But I know specifically in Kirkwood, um, they have taken steps to, you know, do things better and make sure they, you know, are there for children. Of course, Corey is one of those children that they have been there for over the years. Um, you know, she's telling me some stories about sometimes being in school, she just felt like they were, you know, paying her special attention of course because she's kevin's daughter but just make trying to make sure that she's okay but also in my own personal life um my son went to kirkwood high school many years after kevin did but my son went to kirkwood high school he started in elementary school as well um in a kirkwood school district and when he was um in 11th grade i was actually incarcerated and so after i was incarcerated my son lived with his grandmother 
But he came to visit me one day. And of course, the school knew I was incarcerated. You know, they knew all the situation and everything. And he came to, to visit me one day while I was in prison. And, you know, he was telling me about all the great things the, the principals in the school was doing for him because I wasn't there. So they stepped up and made sure that he was OK. So it was and, and at the moment, at the time, I wasn't, you know, really thinking about how that connected back to Kevin. But it really did, because now when you have children that are going through things like incarcerated parents or, you know, you're seeing signs of abuse today, Kirkwood definitely took those steps, over, you know, since Kevin to make sure that they don't allow these kids to fall through the cracks. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was a learning experience for that community. But, you know, sadly, Kevin had to be that, quote unquote, guinea pig for them to learn. And he is right now suffering and, you know, will likely or possibly be executed because, you know, those lessons and, and that understanding wasn't there at the time that he needed it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. I think that's that's really interesting and especially what um, Dr. Stanfield was saying about proximity and being close to people that are impacted and, and that's the, the best way to figure out you know, not to help, but like what your capacity even is to be involved in what the complexities of the system are. Unfortunately, we're running short on time. There's so much to talk about. Um, Michelle, can you give us kind of just like a quick, brief summary of what it what um, is going on right now in the battle leading up to the 29th um, and how people can get more information on the case and what they can do to assist KJ in preventing this execution from happening? Uh, sure. Well, first thing is you can, uh, you know, support and follow and read and learn about what is going on with Kevin from our um, organization's page, which is M A D. PMO.org. And uh, we have an acronym. We, we say uh, Mad PMO. So if you go to madpmo.org or Mad PMO on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, we have videos, we have links to all the information. Um, in addition to showing the governor's office the video last week, they also prepared a clemency application and it details Kevin's life. So we definitely suggest people go read everything that they can and share that information with your family, your community, your church, your school. Um, this is all about you know getting that out to the wider community. So please learn and share. And you can do that. Start from M-A-D-P-M-O on all the socials and um, on the uh, website, madpmo.org. Um, we are, and, and also tonight in St. Louis, this is happening here in St. Louis, we are having a storytelling vigil, and that will be an amazing time to amplify Kevin's humanity. But we definitely invite, you know, our communities in Kansas City and all over the state to um, support what we're doing. Um, if this, this thing goes on November 29th, we definitely need people's support that day. So please go to our website and reach out to us. Um, our um, uh, email is there. It's info at madpmo.org. Also, you can DM us on social media. And we are definitely appreciative of anybody who is willing to show up and support the work that we're doing and to amplify Kevin's life. 
Thank you for that. Um, they they so often want to do this in the cover of darkness. So, you know, at MADP, the work is to not let them do it under the cover of darkness. Um, I just wanted to um, thank our guests today. We ha- are here with Dr. Pam Stanfield, friend of Kevin Johnson and Michelle Smith at Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. And you are listening to uh, KKFI Community Radio. We're so grateful uh, for Community Radio for being able to share the story of Kevin's humanity, as we know that the media has um, pretty much turned a blind eye uh, to this case, and we'll mostly be talking about it the day of the execution. So appreciative to Community Radio, and for both of you for being here on Monday morning, listening to KKFI. Please join me for a two-hour radio broadcast and a two-week streaming podcast featuring an eclectic mix of music from my personal library. Hello, my name is Nico Pisa, and I'm your host of Radio Nico Pisa, a no-genre format that will showcase songs, musicians, singer, songwriters, DJs, and producers, and record labels that are on my favorite list, giving a voice and spotlight to the music and artists that are often overlooked by mainstream commercial radio. Broadcasting Fridays, 2 a.m. to 4 a.m., and streaming live and podcasted for two weeks after the original broadcast. Feel the music. Share the love. Radio Nico Pizza. Hey, Maynard. How many of those extra cars or boats do you really need laying around? Your yard is starting to look like a junkyard. Did you know KKFI would take one or all of those vehicles, running or not? You could get rid of them, providing you have a title, and KKFI would receive the funds which would be a tax deduction for you. Call KKFI at 816-931-3122. Thanks for tuning in to KKFI. The future is here. Simply tell your smart speaker, play KKFI. If you haven't already, give it a shot. KKFI can be wherever you are. Now the calendar for the week of November 21st. The Kansas City Chapter of Missouri Citizens United for the Rehabilitation of Errants has a monthly virtual meeting. Missouri Cure advocates for the human rights of prisoners in Missouri prisons and jails, as well as for those who have returned to society. For information, please call Keith Brownell at 816-377-2873. You can find Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense events at momsdemandaction.org. These are open to all, mothers and others. Wednesday, November 23rd, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., the No Joey Foundation will host a free Thanksgiving ingredients giveaway in Missouri and Kansas. The No Joey Foundation is a local nonprofit dedicated to making a positive impact on young men in the community. This will be the organization's 15th Turkey Tuesday event. The Missouri Free event will be held at 1622 East 17th Terrace, Kansas City, Missouri. The Kansas event will be on the same day and time at 3211 State Avenue in Kansas City, Kansas. Registration is required for the event on Eventbrite. The event is drive-through only and families will need an ID that matches the registration. Third District City Councilman Brandon Ellington will host a community dinner in his district on Wednesday, November 23rd from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Mohart Center at 3200 Wayne Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. Registration is requested at Eventbrite. If you want to learn more, please call 816-513-6529.
Thursday, November 24th, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., the Salvation Army in Kansas and Western Missouri is hosting one of Kansas City's largest free Thanksgiving meals on the holiday. The event will be at the Linwood YMCA James B. Nutter Senior Community Center at 3800 Linwood Boulevard, Kansas City, Missouri. There's no charge. There's no need to sign up. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. We now return to our show. Death Penalty Information Center has generously shared a podcast with us on death penalty reform, and we want to share it with you. Hello, and welcome to Discussions with DPIC. I'm Robert Dunham, Executive Director of the Death Penalty Information Center. In this episode, we're joined by former Oklahoma Governor Brad Henry and former U.S. Magistrate Judge Andy Lester, who served as two of the three co-chairs of the Oklahoma Death Penalty Review Commission. The men, along with Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals Judge Rita Strubar, led the bipartisan commission in producing 46 recommendations for reforming the state's death penalty system. In July 2022, they wrote a joint op-ed calling on state officials to halt the planned executions of 25 prisoners over the next two years, arguing that no execution should take place until the proposed reforms are implemented. Governor Henry, Judge Lester, thank you for joining us on Discussions with DPIC. Great to be here. Thank you, Robert. Wonderful to be here. Oh, our pleasure. Uh, Oklahoma has, shall we say, a long and problematic history with the death penalty, including the botched executions of Clayton Lockett and Charles Warner and the last minute halt of Richard Glossop's scheduled execution in September 2015. That led to a six year halt in executions. Uh, The Oklahoma Death Penalty Review Commission was created and did its work while the executions were on pause. Uh, Governor Henry and Judge Lester, would you tell our listeners how and why the commission was created and how you came to be part of it? I I guess I'll I'll start out here. This is Brad Henry, and I received a phone call from the Constitution Project, which is a uh, an independent bipartisan nonprofit based in the Washington, D.C. area, and they were interested in doing an in-depth study of Oklahoma's death penalty process, the entire process from initial interrogation to the execution. And I thought that would be interesting, although I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I agreed to be a part of that. They asked me to chair the commission. And I I agreed to do it as long as a a number of, of conditions were met. Number one, it had to be a truly bipartisan group. And we, we had to have uh, more than one chairperson. We needed co-chairpersons, and we had to have a bipartisan group of co-chairs. And finally, we, it had to be completely independent in, in that nobody, nobody had an agenda. Nobody had a pre- preconceived notion as to what our findings might be. We were going to really get into the weeds and study the process from start to finish and see what we found. 
and based on that, make recommendations. And so that's how we ended up here today. Uh, I actually recommended that Judge Lester be a part of this group because of his constitutional expertise. And he is a rabid Republican <laughs> and I'm a Democrat. But, you know, and we and, and, and Andy and I, we don't agree on a lot of uh, politics and policy, but we know how to work together. And we together built a consensus of recommendations that were a result of our nearly 300 page report. Judge Lester, what did you think when this offer came to join the commission? Well, and I did speak with Governor Henry about about joining the commission. And uh, candidly, I was a little reluctant at first, but I thought that a a thorough review, as was contemplated, was was important. Uh, we haven't had anything like that here in Oklahoma, and not too many places have undertaken quite as comprehensive a review of the capital punishment system as what we did here with uh, the Death Penalty Review Commission here in Oklahoma. So ultimately, I was I was glad to be a part of it. I was uh, particularly glad to be a part of it because it was going to be a not just even nonpartisan, but a bipartisan group. And indeed, uh, reviewing and looking at who the commission members were, it, it truly was. It was a group of people from all across Oklahoma, from different perspectives. We had former prosecutors. We had former judges. Uh, we had people concerned with victims' rights, people concerned with, with the rights of, uh, of, of the defendants, of the people who uh, perhaps were ultimately going to be convicted. Uh, and so it had a, it, it, we had a wide variety of types of people involved on the commission. And, and that was uh, that was important to me in joining the commission. Now, why was it so important that it that it be bipartisan and, and not just uh, not just appear to be bipartisan, but actually be bipartisan? From my perspective, it was absolutely vital. So we had people who were uh, opponents of the death penalty on the commission. We had people who were proponents of the death penalty on the commission. The point was to have people who knew a lot, who knew a lot about the whole criminal uh, adjudicatory process, but who collectively did not have uh, did not have an agenda to necessarily to abolish the death penalty or to uphold the death penalty, but uh, but simply wanted to do a complete and thoroughgoing study and see what the. Uh, what the research and what the facts actually led to. And I think that's what happened here. And uh, if, uh, our, our uh, deliberations were, were done confidentially. Uh, what I can say about them generically, though, is uh, while we, we had lots of agreements and lots of disagreements, but it was all done in a way to reach a result that we were all all of us, as disparate as our viewpoints were, to uh, were able to come to an agreement and to uh, what was ultimately a, a unanimous report. Yeah, and, and I absolutely agree. And I would just underscore that it was critically important that we have a uh, that we had a, a diverse group of opinions and perspectives on this commission. We didn't want to come at it from simply one angle or one perspective. We wanted all perspectives. We wanted to review all aspects of the death penalty process. And again, it was critically important that we begin the process with a blank 
sheet, no agenda. And that's exactly what we did. I'm proud of our work. As am I. Now you took a long end. If you've read, if for folks who've read the report, very thorough look uh, at Oklahoma's death penalty from beginning through execution, exoneration, commutation. And you came up with 46 uh, recommendations. What did you find that was wrong or needed improvement with Oklahoma's death penalty system? And what do you consider were your most important recommendations? I think we found that there were issues throughout the process from the initial aspect of what ultimately becomes a death penalty case, uh, the interrogation of a suspect through the end, through lethal injection. And I, I think all of our recommendations are important and they work in tandem together. I mean, if you just pick one recommendation that maybe reforms uh, the jury selection process, then uh, you're still missing out on the benefits from our recommendations related to the interrogate, the initial interrogation of the suspect and blind and double blind lineups and things such as, you know, eyewitness identification is some of the most powerful evidence before a jury, yet it is some of the most unreliable evidence uh, according to all experts that, that I've looked at. And, and so there are ways through better training for law enforcement, better procedures and processes in terms of, of uh, recording interviews and, and recording lineups, recording uh, whether it's a photo lineup or an actual lineup, making sure they're double blind so that the law enforcement official who is presiding over the eyewitness lineup actually doesn't know who the suspect is, so they can't help point the the eyewitness toward that person. There are many, many important reforms, but I think they all work in tandem. But our overarching reform, and, and I think probably the most critical recommendation that we made was that Unless and until significant reforms occur in the entire death penalty process, we should not be executing people in Oklahoma. We we recommended that at that time there was a moratorium on executions. We recommended that that moratorium remain in place until these significant reforms were addressed. And if I could jump in here, I'm, I'm very proud of, of the entire report uh, of everything that we did. That's not to say that I didn't have a uh, perhaps a, a disagreement or two with with you know a word here or a phrase there. But I, I can tell you, I, I fully support everything that this report did and, and, and recommends. With that said, we have 46 recommendations. I agree with Governor Henry that the most important one is is uh, is the first one, the overarching one uh, that that he just mentioned, that the moratorium not be lifted until significant reforms have been accomplished. And that's quoting directly from the report. That's not to say that it's it would be possible for the certainly the state could take up a lot of our recommendations and not take up all of them. I wish the state would take up all of them, but even if the state were to take up uh, the, the you know, a substantial majority of them, that would be a great step forward. 
some of these recommendations, a lot of them involve some pretty simple things, such as better education for for prosecutors, better education for defense lawyers, better education for police officers, better education for judges, better education basically for everybody involved in the process. When we issued the report and we, we Governor Henry and I met with several of the uh, the important groups involved uh, with this entire process, including, of course, the district attorneys. And the district attorneys were very supportive of better ed- education, not just for themselves, uh, but particularly for defense lawyers and for police officers and judges and everybody else involved in it. And, and, and these are things that just need to happen and they need to happen not later. They need to happen now. These are these are important, important issues on uh, perhaps the single most important or certainly ultimate decision that the people as a state, as the state of Oklahoma, make whether or not to take somebody's life. And these types of things ought to be happening now. But here we are now, five years later, and not much has happened. Why is that? Well, I've, I've thought about that quite a bit. And I think some of it happens because of the, uh, the wonderful Republican form of government that we have, where we elect new people every few years. And it is a great and wonderful system. I think it's the best system in the world. One of the problems that happens, though, with uh, frequent, uh, relatively frequent anyway, elections is that the office holders change. Most of the statewide office holders and many of the local office holders have changed since the time that this report uh, was issued. And the report was issued in 2017. We had a different governor then. We had a different attorney general then. Some of the some of the district attorneys have changed. Not all of them have. Some of them are going to change this year. These types of things happen, and uh, you know the state gets involved in this issue of the day or that issue of the day. And this one seems to unfortunately have gone by uh, the wayside. With that said, I'm encouraged that our statewide and local officials and others do agree with the the recommendations that we've made. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to get some of these recommendations implemented uh, promptly, but it, with that said, it still needs to happen now. Governor Henry, how do you address the loss of institutional knowledge? And Judge Lester was talking about the change in, in personnel, but you were, you know, you were a governor. You had to deal with with changing legislators. How do you address that? Well, it, it's a problem. I also served 10 years in the legislature, six of which I served as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The same year that I was elected, 1992, to the Senate was also the year that the people voted in a term limit for legislators, a 12-year term limit. And look, I'm I'm no longer there. I'm term limited. I have no I, I have no interest in in getting back in the legislature, but I still don't like term limits. And and one of the reasons is because they create constant turnover. And you lose that institutional memory among the legislative bodies. And 
And, and I think that results in some of the, the issues that Andy just raised. I also think that, you know, back to your original question as to why some of these reforms have not been taken up. Frankly, reforming the death penalty process is not a sexy political issue for legislators to carry or to run for reelection on. In fact, it can be because I think many aspects of the death penalty process are misunderstood. It can be uh, detrimental to your your legislative career. And I think at the end of the day, I, I believe that it is a conservative value to want to serve justice, to want to ensure that both victims and defendants in our death penalty process receive fair, consistent and accurate treatment and that we are not executing innocent people. I think that's a conservative value. Oklahoma is a conservative state. My whole point is, is if we're going to do this, I mean, we can have a whole debate about whether we should abolish or not the death penalty. That was not the job of the Death Penalty Review Commission, and we did not take up that issue. But if we're going to to have the death penalty in Oklahoma, my goodness, it ought to be done right to ensure as best we can that we are not executing innocent people. Let me jump back in here if I if I might. Because I, uh, I think I am the uh, uh, the quote conservative person <laughs> on on uh, in this conversation, and so people understand my my own uh, conservative bona fides. I served on uh, President then President elect Reagan's transition team for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I will tell you that one of the uh, other seven members of of that transition team was was a young lawyer named Clarence Thomas. I come from a conservative perspective. I am a conservative, uh, and uh, Governor Henry would tell you and mentioned, uh, alluded to it earlier, that uh, sometimes he and I disagree. Uh, plenty of times we disagree on on political issues. I agree with him, though, that this is a conservative value. This is the ultimate power that the state, as the state, has. And the state should not be exercising any power in, a, in an irrational way, and, and we need to be absolutely certain that we have, if we're going to have a death penalty, that, that we do it the right way. And the, these recommendations are fairly modest, uh, but vital. Yeah, and, and really, most of these recommendations are not even controversial, in my opinion. There are a few controversial recommendations, but most are, are if, if you, you know, if you really look at the recommendations, they're not controversial. They're, they're just the right thing to do. There are two types of issues, maybe three, that, that repeatedly come up in Oklahoma and around the country as well. One is, does the system accurately identify the people who are capitally prosecuted? Another is the appellate process and and commutation and review. And the third is something that's been extremely controversial in Oklahoma, and that's the process by which individuals uh, are actually put to death. And that, that that isn't a substantive death penalty issue, but it really uh, is a significant issue and tells a lot about who we are uh, as people. 
And as I mentioned earlier, Oklahoma put executions on pause uh, after three high-profile botched executions in 2014 and 2015. And that led to the impaneling of a grand jury that issued highly critical findings uh, about state secrecy practices and and concluded that basically everybody who was involved in the actual execution process uh, had done things that were wrong. The legislature then changed the law to authorize executions with nitrogen gas, but the Oklahoma Department of Corrections wasn't able to come up with a workable mechanism for administering it. And then, even with your recommendations, the state in 2021 issued a new execution protocol that adopted essentially the same drug cocktail that had caused problems six years earlier. And the state then set seven execution dates, even though a federal lawsuit on the execution process was still pending and a court date had been set for the trial. The first person who was executed was John Grant. And the witnesses reported that he suffered full body convulsions, more than two dozen of them, vomited several times over the course of 15 minutes, while ODOC officials, Department of Corrections officials, said the execution was carried out, and I'm quoting here, without complication. I'm wondering what you think about Grant's execution and the department's denial that anything went wrong. What does that tell us? Uh, Governor, about Oklahoma's death penalty system, and what should the state have done to prevent these botched executions? Well, I, I mean, I really am not familiar with the details of the Grant case or the execution process, other than the reports that I've read in the media. I can tell you that I read the, the multi-county grand jury's report, which was quite lengthy, several years ago, criticizing the process by which the Department of Corrections used to execute prisoners. And and I agree that, that there were many things wrong with the process. And our, our report addresses that. We make recommendations ar- around the execution process. This is such a, a critically important issue and you know we we have lots of work to do there's there's uh, across the country not just in oklahoma but across the country and uh robert i want to thank you for the uh the opportunity to uh to appear and present our our case and our findings and i would certainly commend to anybody who wants to know more about the Oklahoma process to get a copy. You can find it on the internet, get a copy of the Oklahoma Death Penalty Review Commission report. I think it's pretty interesting rating. Governor Henry, Judge Lester, thank you for joining us on Discussions with Deep Pick and for sharing your expertise and your views. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. To learn more about the death penalty, visit our website at www.deathpenaltyinfo.org. And to find a copy of the Oklahoma Death Penalty Review Commission report, go to our Oklahoma State page. To make sure you never miss an episode of Discussions with DPIC, subscribe to your podcast app of choice.
sitting here in my problem What am I gonna do now? Am I gonna make it? Somewhere, somehow Well, maybe I'm not supposed to know We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guest of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. 